So tonight I'd like to talk about some of the things, some of the difficulties that we face when we sit, when we come on retreat. The Buddha, in oft-quoted statement, said, Luminous is this mind, brightly shining. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it's obscured by the attachments that visit it. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but obscured by the visiting attachments, visiting tendencies of mind. And it's these visiting tendencies, these attachments, that I'd like to go into a little this evening, because they're what prevents us from resting in our true nature, prevents us from settling into uh, a depth of meditative awareness. And I, I understand this practice is twofold. One is understanding who we are, understanding our true nature, seeing clearly into the way things are, and understanding everything that obscures that namely the deep-rooted patterns and tendencies of mind and heart that we struggle with in our lives. And the Buddha talked about five particular tendencies known as the hindrances or obstacles to meditation that uh, are frequent visitors on retreat, frequent visitors in our lives, and they are, see if you recognize them, see if you had them in the last hour. Desire, sense desire, aversion, restlessness, dullness, sleepiness, and doubt. Or as Snow White calls her dwarves, greedy, grumpy, fidgety, sleepy, and confused. <laughs> So on retreat, we get to be very familiar with some of these habits. Sometimes we have to play with working with one particular hindrance that seems to follow us around in our practice. Sometimes we have what's called a multiple, multiple hindrance attack, where it seems like they're kind of ganging up on us. So you might be restless, fidgeting mind, the mind jumping all over the place, and then you start to feel a lot of aversion because of the restlessness and the discontent. After a while, you get fed up with that, and you start to fall asleep. And then to to come out of the sleepiness, you decide to have a little fantasy. And then on the cycle goes. That's often how we live our lives, kind of running through the hindrances. And they're very universal. You know, I'll talk about them, and they'll sound very familiar, And yet we all experience them. And we often personalize them as being a sort of personal problem. Yet they're really these universal habits that run through most mind streams. And in the spirit of mindfulness practice, The idea is that we're including everything in our practice, everything 
is to be looked at, to be felt, to be seen, to be examined. Often we, the view will come up, well, if only this wasn't in the way, if only I was less sleepy, if only I wasn't so restless, if only I could be contented and not so desirous, then I could practice. Rather than thinking, actually, these things arise to be understood, to be practiced, to be seen and to be related to with wisdom, with kindness. And in my experience with mindfulness, uh, the deeper the mindfulness, the less these tendencies tend to uh, grab hold of the mind and heart. So the first two energies I'd like to talk about are often the energies that we have to deal with in the first few days of a retreat, the hindrances of restlessness and sleepiness. And I think we partly deal with them because of the crazy pace in which our culture is running at and the the way most of us live our lives. There's a lot of busyness in the culture. And we move between hyperactive doing and then crashing and slumping in the in front of the TV. We gravitate between those two energies. I was on the plane coming over. I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and this is sort of indicative of where our culture's at. There's a picture of a uh, kind of a corporate exec in his bathtub, clawfoot bathtub, and uh, he's on his laptop. He's, he's got a sort of improvised desk on his laptop and he's got his Blackberry and he's got the stock markets uh, quotes running like on a ticker tape in, in his bathroom tiles. And it's actually not that far from reality. So it says, this is called the Type A bathroom. With a Blackberry, two mobile phones, three office computers and wireless internet for his car, Greg Shankman is never far from his work. But recently the CEO of San Francisco-based Exogen Group eked out more productivity by wiring the final frontier, his bathroom. When Mr. Shankman answers a speakerphone in his shower, the water, the water automatically shuts off. <laughs> this is serious. <laughs> he can open the front door for deliveries while shaving. He's also put the finishing touches on a waterproof computer that will let him answer emails from the sauna. I took Gates a little too, f- literally, he says, the flow of information never stops. So, and then they list all the different things that people are wiring up in their bathrooms from. Some people are wiring up these uh, vanity mirrors that double as both a TV and a computer and uh, something else, something equally bizarre. And when they asked people who'd installed this stuff, 28% had confessed that they checked their email from the bathroom. And they're even wiring up stuff to go by the toilet stall. So um, I don't know how many of you have put your uh, computer laptop screen into your bathroom mirror yet, but... So it's kind of a reflection of the insanity, that the speed in which we're living is happening. So no wonder when we get to retreat, the first thing that we encounter is exhaustion, tiredness, 
dullness, sloth. Yogi Berra said, if I didn't wake up, I'd probably still be asleep. (laughs) It's very deep. (laughs) So that this hindrance is called sloth and torpor. And I love the word sloth because it really speaks to that quality of heaviness and dullness. If you've seen pictures of sloths in zoos or seen them, they're amazing because they don't move. They just hang out all day. And they crawl down once down the tree once a day and get some food and crawl back up and kind of hang around, which is why we no longer, no longer have sloths in North, North America. We used to. Except on retreat. <laughs> So sloth and torpor is, is both physical dullness, heaviness, sleepiness, lethargy, and also a mental dullness or fatigue. And it can also be a quality of laziness or resistance. In meditation, it's kind of the, the head nodding syndrome. You may have noticed it in yourself or others. It's a little head bobbing. There used to be a little ornament, those little birds that bobbed like that. I once had a friend whose head hit the floor quite hard. It was a wooden floor. Uh, Sloth. So sometimes it's just the body's tired, physically tired, exhausted. Sometimes we need to rest. Sometimes we need to sleep. Sometimes we need to nap to balance the exhaustion that we've arrived in. I know in this culture, uh, generally... Um, studies that I've read chronicle that people work harder, work longer hours in this country than in equivalent uh, North European countries uh, in particular. And there's billions of days of vacation time left untaken every year. There's such an emphasis on work and getting ahead. I lived in Spain for five months uh, a while ago. And uh, it's a very different culture to be in. They really, I, learned, I learned how to take siestas, which I really valued. And it was just interesting being in a culture that um, had a different pace, a different relationship to balanced energy. One of the proverbs that I learned there was, it's beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. So it's kind of, you know, you could say kind of like a meditation mantra. Beautiful to do nothing. We're not really doing anything here. We're resting, being present. Sometimes when we feel sleepiness, we experience a lot of resistance. And partly that resistance is we have an attachment to clarity, an attachment to being energized, attachment to being caffeinated. And I remember I used to really resist, I used to hate being tired, I used to hate that nodding sensation. Uh, And at some point I just learned to find a place of ease, just to surrender that 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 the body has natural rhythms. And that when I stopped fighting tiredness, when I stopped thinking tiredness was a problem, it was just okay. I was just, I was able to experience the world through a tired lens. It's not such a big deal. 
Sometimes we get tied on retreat because of the lack of stimulation is so such a contrast to our lives. You know, our lives are generally very stimulated visually and auditory and otherwise. And the level of subtlety of attention that's required on a retreat is very different. It's quieter, more subtle. And so it can take some adjustment to uh, refine what's often a very coarse energy. Sometimes we get tired because, or slothful, because there's a lot of emotional pain that we're carrying that we don't want to feel. I remember, and I was sitting with an organization that I used to practice with in England, a colleague of mine had sloth for years, years and years and years. And he, he, he knew it was some kind of resistance to emotional pain that he couldn't access. And every time he sat, he'd fall asleep. Sometimes we feel slothful because we've had too much to eat. Notice what your afternoon meditation is like after lunch. Or pay attention to the relationship between food and wakefulness, between how much you sleep and wakefulness. A subtler form of sloth is what's called the sinking mind. The sinking mind is often a quality of uh, energy or attention that um, we, we can sit and feel relatively concentrated, and after a period of time, the mind kind of sinks, the energy sinks, and we don't have enough uh, energy to support the concentration. And again, sometimes that takes a while of practice to learn to balance those. So notice, notice if, you, if you're kind of drifting in the middle of your sit, it's probably because of lack of energy. So we've talked some about working with slothfulness, energizing the body when it's present, opening the eyes, standing up, taking a few deep breaths, sitting upright. We can also pay attention to tiredness, actually turn the lens of mindfulness towards tiredness itself. Sometimes that in itself energizes the system, feeling what, what in sloth is like. Get curious. Curiosity arouses energy. So, so we get curious about, being, about slothful, being slothful, and it can often shift the energy. And we can reflect on why we're here, develop some sense of urgency. Reflecting on the preciousness of this time can sometimes arouse some energy. The stories, there's all kinds of stories of Zen masters doing all kinds of interesting things to stay awake. One used to sit with a knife under his chin so he wouldn't nod. We don't recommend it. We'd be sued. And I think Dogen used to sit, Zen masters Dogen used to sit on the edge of a well so he wouldn't fall asleep. Um... There's different ways of stimulating yourself other than that. Walking practice can be really helpful. Taking longer walks, walking more vigorously. And then the opposite quality uh, to that, restlessness. Physical and mental restlessness. It's an agitation of the mind. Puppy mind, monkey mind, the mind that can't sit still. Think about a young lab puppy, you know, all over the place, sniffing and into everything and can't sit still and 
doesn't take orders. That's kind of like our mind when it's restless. We've had too much caffeine. It's distracted. It's unable to focus. It's all over the place. It's very unpleasant to be in. The mind's spinning. A lot of thoughts about the future. Or it's a physical restlessness. Agitation, edginess, impatience, inability to settle. And again, the cause of that is, is interesting to pay attention to, to notice why these things arise. The Buddha was often encouraging us to pay attention what brings things into being and what allows them to pass away. So notice when restlessness is here, what may be the causes for that. Often the cause for restlessness is thinking often about the future. It's often translated this hindrance is often translated as restlessness and anxiety. It's a certain preoccupation about the future that's worry, worry-filled, anxious. Comes with a lot of planning mind, trying to fix the future in some way. Or as the phrase that Mark Twain said something like, the worst things in my life never happened. But I certainly spent a lot of time thinking about them. You know, we spend a lot of time doing that, whipping ourselves up into agitation, worrying about money, worrying about people we love, worrying about the stock market, worrying about our finances. And it's all just a phenomena in the mind. It doesn't actually get us anywhere. There was a yogi came in today and was talking about experiencing difficult back pain and uh, had the sort of the, so a lot of thoughts about that, and one of them was, I'm going to die. That this back pain is going to get so bad, I'm going to die. Of course, create a lot of anxiety and nausea and sweating and difficulty. That's the restless mind spinning into the future, creating suffering. This is another um, story, in a way, of how we we generate this quality in our lives. It's called "Sweet Nothing." It's from the Chicago Times. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Oh, busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. You name the question. Busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know we are all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, and more accurate ways to answer the question. How are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm very itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is a short way of saying or implying my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you therefore should think very well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week's crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there was a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. 
We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off things from the to-do list. As kids, our stock answer to most every question, what did you do at school today, what's new, was nothing. Eh, nothing, nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> and three of those were named Hanson. I don't get that joke anyhow. <laughs> then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180-degree turn. We crashed in on nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it to, into our own grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say to myself a few times, and I can already feel becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, kind of zenish. Nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing, nothing. How do we get so far away from it? So in a way, what we're doing here is a perfect antidote because we're not doing anything. We're sitting and walking all day doing nothing except paying attention. So naming, naming restlessness as it's present can be really helpful. Just to, As soon as we name something, as soon as we apply some recognition to it, we're kind of embracing it with mindfulness. It already means we're somewhat disengaging, less caught, and therefore less uh, gripped, less suffering. It also means that we need to, to find balance. When we're restless and agitated, what we're lacking is calm. So finding ways to calm the body, calm the mind, soothe ourselves. Sometimes I say to myself, when my mind's spinning out of control about something, I just say, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Sometimes sitting really still helps. The mind and the body's fidgeting and restless and itching and wants to jump up. Just making a commitment to sit still can bring some calm to the system. Sensing into the stillness in the room, in the stillness of silence. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that's more constraining and it creates more agitation. And what's necessary is to, the image I think of is putting a, a wild stallion in a, in a large field. You don't pen them into a little pen, a little st stable. You give them a broad field. So in the same way, you might want to open the attention, listen to sounds, feel the whole body, feel the whole body breath, and just sort of relax and open the awareness. And sometimes that gives enough space for the energy to, to play in. For myself, I take a lot of refuge in nature. I find nature is a great resource for many things. And one of the things I find it helpful with is this quality of restlessness. Nature, for most people, is very calming, is very soothing. They've actually done studies that trees exude some kind of 
not quite sure exactly what it is, maybe electromagnetic energy that has a tranquilizing effect on us. This is from Wendell Berry, who a beautiful writer and farmer and poet who knows well the blessings of nature. He said, When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. So the qualities of restlessness and sleepiness. Then there's the qualities of aversion and desire. Anybody had any aversion today? Resistance? Again, we often see a lot of this in the first few days. We come to IMS, we have all kinds of fantasies and ideas about what our retreat is. And then the train wreck of our lives comes and slams into the silence and we feel tiredness and restless and grumpy and distracted and unable to follow more than two breaths and we're in a room of a hundred people and we're not eating the food that we normally get and a lot of aversion can arise. Aversion is is really the simple resistance to what's happening in the moment and not wanting of what's happening in the moment. And there's a lot of things that we don't want or don't like here in our minds, in our bodies, in our lives. And there's two ways of understanding aversion. One is a more passive form. One is a more sort of active. The passive form is when we recoil from experience. We withdraw, we resist, we back off, we avoid, we deny. Um, we space out, we check out, we bypass. And then the more active form is when we move towards with aggression, aversion, anger, hatred, racism, uh, rage, uh, violence. Or it can be an acting out, moaning, complaining, judging. They all have a common quality of contractedness. It's a contraction away from what's happening. And that very nature of contraction is painful. To be in a contracted state is painful. So as I said, we get lots of opportunities to practice with aversion. Notice what happens if someone takes your zafu. It can happen sometimes. It can be in this very equanimous, peaceful state, and you get to your place, and someone's taken my zafu. I've had that experience happening. It's very disorienting. Or we can have aversion to our physical experience, physical pain. Back pain, knee pain, old injuries. Just by the very nature of sitting still for a long time, we will experience a certain amount of uh, physical discomfort. And the first unconscious habitual response is aversion. Ow, I don't want it, I don't like it, I hate it, go away. Or we experience aversion to the mind, to our thoughts, to our 
distractibility, or towards our emotions, towards the difficult feelings that might arise. Or we might feel it towards the food. Some of you may love the food. Some of you may have a lot of intense aversion to it. Some of you might be missing hamburgers and steaks. I had somebody once brought a whole chicken and a toaster oven into their bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) The problem was when they put the chicken in the toaster oven, it started to cook and, you know, smelled out the whole place. It was kind of a giveaway. I work at this retreat center in the mountains in New Mexico, and uh, they don't let people bring coffee. So people smuggle it into <laughs> people camp, so they bring cook stoves and a little, you know, Emmanuel coffee grinder. And anything to avoid feeling aversion. You might be feeling aversion to the practice, to the teachings, to the teachers, or to the schedule. You might have thought you were going to come to this very easy schedule, and you have to get up at... 5.30, go to bed at 9.30. So noticing where, where aversion arises for you. Often happens when someone's breathing loud. When we can feel kind of homicidal. <laughs> Just because someone's breathing too loud. I've been there. I, I did this three-month course, and my dear neighbor friend had some kind of sinus thing going on. And <laughs> I wanted to kill him. (laughs) If you notice your reaction is a little out of proportion to the event, this is a phenomenon called yogi mind, where we're in this very intense, contained environment, and things get blown out of proportion. So someone's breath or someone's coughing can, you know, we can be feeling rage. You really want to tear someone's head off. I remember doing a retreat here a while ago, and I was doing a concentration retreat, which had some particularly pleasant qualities of absorption. Um, But the beginning part of that, when I wasn't that concentrated, every time I would sort of be getting into a groove, somebody with this one particular person, who shall remain nameless, um would do walking meditation outside my room. Not to intentionally, but it would be just enough to pull my attention off. And I just get so frustrated with this person you know, doing a lovely walking practice, <laughs> doing their practice. So it can happen in any, in any situation. I also had an experience, as we all have, anybody who's practiced in Asia will have their stories of dealing with aversion. My particular uh, most poignant memory was being in Bodh Gaya some years ago and uh, sitting with a a loudspeaker noise. There's there's usually some kind of loudspeaker noise going on, but this particular year it was a travel agency. (laughs) And they were announcing uh, bus tickets to all different parts of India. And there was a lot of Tibetan pilgrims going past the monastery in the morning and night. So they'd run the tape most of the day from about 8 in the morning. And they put these loudspeakers on top of the buildings in India to get as much attention and broadcast it as far as possible. And our retreat center was just opposite from this travel agency that set up shop. So we got there on 
it was like the second or third morning, this travel agent set up shop and turned the loudspeaker on and on, on came this message that said something like, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> and then it'd speak in Hindi for a few seconds. Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, Darjeeling, Damsala, Banaras. And then it would rewind and then start again. Hello? 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 Calcutta, Darjeeling, Bombay, Delhi. 8.05. Hello? 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 Aversion, aversion, aversion. Unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. Resistance, resistance. Hatred, hatred. Why me? Why here? Why now? Don't they know it's a monastery? And the mind just span, as you can imagine. You know, if somebody set up shop outside, you know, would have a fit. So this was a 20-day retreat, and it was um, it's in a very basic monastery. There's not much protection from, there's no windows or anything like that. So there wasn't much just getting away from it, and we'd pray for the electricity to go out, because... <laughs> It would sometimes in India. <laughs> and, um, you know, the aversion came and went, the aversion came and went, Mother Sound came and went. And then it went on for days and days and days. And uh, it was, you know, forget the breath, it was a hearing meditation. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> Homicidal feelings came up. We weren't allowed to leave the ground, so we couldn't do any sort of, you know, yogi sabotaging of the loudspeaker. And then after a few days, or maybe more than that, um, (laughs) some of us, slow learners, it began to just be noise. It began to just be sound. And after noticing it unpleasant, 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 hatred, 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 aversion, 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 after a while it just became sound. The, The mind was able to let go of the reactivity. And it was just sound. It was just noise. And became sort of neutral. At some point, some, at sometimes pleasant, because it was amusing. And it was a great teaching, because it really taught me that I didn't have to fix the thing that was bothering me. You know, we, normally have, we normally respond to things, we barely experience things that are unpleasant before we reach out to fix them and change them and adjust them in some way. And being there was a great opportunity just to, to, to rest and settle and to see that actually that didn't have to happen. It was really the suffering came with my relationship to what was happening, not the actual experience. And after a while, the sound just became, just became sound. So when you're noticing you're in aversion, noticing what you're aversive to, are you aversive to the actual thing the sound, the food, the sensation, or you feeling aversion to what's called a feeling tone, Vedana, to the unpleasantness of it. So with every experience, there's a feeling tone of pleasantness or unpleasantness, or somewhat in between, neutral. And it's usually the unpleasant feeling tone that we're reacting to. So when I was hearing that sound, it created an unpleasant feeling tone, it's the unpleasant feeling tone that we react to. 
the Buddha said, when one is touched by a painful feeling, if one grieves and laments and weeps and becomes distraught, then the underlying tendency to aversion lies within one. O monks, that one shall make an end to suffering without abandoning this underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling, that is impossible. So the practice becomes one of observing this feeling tone, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and to noticing how we react, either with aversion if we don't like it, or with grasping and desire if we like it. Also to notice how aversion arises towards ourselves. Self-judgment, self-hatred, self-rejection. All different ways that we um, have resistance or dislike to ourselves, lack of self-acceptance. When the Dalai Lama used to first hear about how much Westerners disliked themselves, he first couldn't understand it, and second thought it was wrong, that it was a fundamental wrong view to think that we're not, to think that we're bad, to think that there's something flawed with us. And often the aversion towards ourselves manifests as a critic. How many times have you heard the critic on this retreat? Not being good enough for not being a good enough yogi, good enough meditator, good enough not paying attention well enough, not walking slow enough. All the different ways that we can give ourselves a hard time. Notice when when the critic arises, notice it. Notice it as as as, as what it is. It's a thought. It's a judging thought. It's a self-judging thought. It's usually not actually that true. It's usually distorted subjective perception. I generally say to mine, thank you for your opinion, goodbye. (laughs) Which is what it is. It's an opinion. And often has not much validity. Sometimes we practice in a way to um, avoid difficulty and pain. To avoid, you know, our practice can sometimes be one of uh, bypassing, avoiding the difficult. And these teachings are encouraging us to actually look at discomfort in the face, to to look at whatever is uncomfortable or, or difficult that's arising in the moment, not to bypass it, not to bypass the aversion, but to actually notice it, to feel it, to be with it. Sometimes we practice in a way with, a, um, with an agenda, like I'll be with this unpleasant situation as long as it goes away. You know, I'll be with the pain in my knee really mindfully for at least five minutes if it goes away. And that's not really mindfulness. It's much more just meeting our experience with an agenda. So a couple of things to... When working with aversion, one again is to name it, just to open to it, just to feel it. Notice what aversion feels like. But the more we feel the, the, the quality of aversion, the more we'll feel the, the painful, contract, contracted nature of it the more likely we are to put it down. Because to be in contraction like that is suffering. Why would we carry it around if we're suffering? 
if we open to the painful quality of, of aversion, of hatred, of that sense of separation, we're more likely to feel compassion for ourselves because we feel into the suffering quality of it. Since aversion is a movement away from an object, an antidote to aversion is to move towards, to move towards that which we're aversive to with interest, with curiosity. A good friend of mine said to me a while ago, I always, I always make a point of getting to know people I hate. Because once I get to know them, I stop hating them. The movement towards cuts through the sense of separation and diminishes that sense of reactivity. So move towards that which is diff- difficult in your experience. With, not with a sense of force or pushing, but with a sense of curiosity. And if things are strongly unpleasant and difficult, remember that they'll pass. It's really helpful, especially with physical pain, emotional pain. We always think when we're in the middle of something, this is going to last forever. And that view makes the present situation really intolerable. And then to remember uh, the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth being the truth of suffering, just to remember this is suffering. If something is difficult and painful and we're having aversion, to just name it, oh yeah, this is pain, this is suffering. Sometimes takes the idea that it's wrong out of it and just, oh, this is suffering. Life, this is part of life too. Sharon taught the, the, the loving-kindness practice today. It's a wonderful practice to overcome aversion, hatred, self-hatred. So the, the polar opposite hindrance to aversion is desire. Sense desire, desire for pleasant experience. Anybody notice any desire, any desires today? Desires for something more interesting, sexual desire, desire for stimulation, or anything but the present moment. <laughs> desire really is, in a similar way that aversion is, it's a, it's a reaching out for something other than what is. It's in a way, it's a fundamental inability to, act, to be at ease with what is. And desires are endless. You may have noticed that already. You counted all the desires, small and large, today. So desires don't necessarily go away, but we need to learn how to relate to them with wisdom. And there's very different kinds of desires. There's wholesome desires, like your desire to practice, your desire to attain freedom. Wholesome desire that leads to the end of desire. And there's desires that are less wholesome, that lead to more suffering. Unwholesome desire generally has a slightly compulsive, addictive, compelling quality to it. It's a kind of desires that lead to more desire. The addict desire for another hit is a, is a classic example of that. When we're in this more unwholesome desire, we have tunnel vision. We kind of like the whole world drops away, except we become fixated on the thing that we're wanting. I remember once doing a retreat in England and as in Wales, actually. 
and I um, was fixated on chocolate. Well, I was fixated on my suffering, and I thought, well, okay, there's a sweet shop, or we call a sweet shop candy store, three miles down the road. And um, I was so fixated, and it was really stormy, and it was a terrible winter's day. But I was had such strong tunnel vision, then I went to the store. I went and I, this excuse I made up for myself was my flat, my roommate was sick, so I thought I'd get him some cough medicine and then go get some goodies. So down I went, three miles through the pouring rain, all my rain gear on, got to the store, loaded up with chocolate, went back to the retreat center, walked into my room, saw my flatmate who was still sick, and I thought, oops, forgot the cough medicine. <laughs> That's tunnel vision. That's the blindness that desire gets us into. It can override our goodwill. It can override our value sometimes. You know, when people are uh, like infidelity in relationships, it's a, it's a form of tunnel vision, not seeing the consequences of our actions. And it's fueled by a very deep belief system. It's some belief that if we get this thing, we're going to be happy. It's going to do it. If I get my morning coffee, if only they serve morning coffee here, or chai, or something, I'd be happy. So pay attention to that, to the belief system that's fueling the desire that you're in. The, the, you know, the belief that this will do it in some way. And we can notice this when we're meditating, sitting, watching the breath, and it can be very subtle. Oh, I'd just like my breath to be a little calmer, a little smoother, longer, deeper. <laughs> oh, you know, I wish I could just get back that state of calm or bliss I had yesterday. It was only a f- momentary, but I'm, and we'll do all kinds of things to manipulate our experience to, to, to regain a sense of bliss or happiness. It often comes as the if-only mind. If only... I brought my favorite Zafu, I'd be sitting better. If only the schedule was a little different. If only they didn't serve oatmeal in the morning. That's more aversion. We can see it in the way that we move out of the present moment and we lean forward into the next moment, the next breath, the next experience. Grasping is a form of Postponement. We postpone happiness in the present moment in the hope of expectation or receiving some kind of pleasure in the future. It's also the way that we hold on. Something pleasant happens, like some moments of no thought, some moments of rapture, and we go, oh, great, finally, thank God, it's arrived to three days already. And then we grab on. Oh, great, how do I make this stay around? How do I keep this? And of course, that very nature of the grasping makes it go. When we hold on to anything pleasant, it evaporates in our fingers. A yogi once described this to, to Joseph as rope burn. It's like holding onto a rope when we're falling. Same kind of burning. 
and we know we, we, we think we know that everything's changing, but we try to hold on to things. We hold on to relationships, to people wanting them to be the same way, because that always works. So desires will come and go endlessly, and our practice is to relate to that movement of grasping wisely. To see that it's the holding on, it's the attachment to having those desires satisfied that really causes the suffering. Desires will come and go endlessly in the mind stream. The suffering follows that desire when we when we fixate, when we get caught, when we attach to the belief that that must happen. You know, and we, 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 we bring with us decades of our conditioning that keeps telling us if you get certain stuff, if you do certain things, you'll be happy. If you buy enough stuff, if you consume enough, if you make enough, you'll get happy. The, 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 the hardwiring of happiness lies by fulfilling our desires is really deep-rooted. We are homo shopians more or less, or human consumings. I'm not going to talk about doubt this evening because Sharon's going to talk about that tomorrow. So I'll just spend a few more minutes talking about desire. And then I'll wrap up. So one of my favorite examples of desire is the example that Joseph uses of catalog consciousness, where we're uh, sitting quietly at home and noticing the pile of catalogs on our kitchen table. And we may be feeling completely, perfectly content and then we start picking up a catalog, looking for something to want. So we're looking through casually, casually, casually. Oh, yeah, I really want that. <laughs> Suddenly we get fixated, caught in that fuel of desire. And if we pay attention, it's actually very unpleasant. We could be desiring something very juicy. And yet, regardless of the object, the, the sense of longing is painful. And we need compassion for ourselves for the strength of this conditioning. It's a very powerful conditioning. Desire is the what makes samsara goes round, goes around, according to the Buddha. And this is uh, an ad that I like to read. Um, it's my favorite ad from any magazine that's trying to rip off spirituality to sell stuff. It's from Ford Motor Company. And it's of a guy sitting in front of his pickup truck with all of his stuff that he likes to um, have, like his scuba equipment and his canoe and his computer and his dog and his bike and his skis and his 
Oh, his golf clubs and his pickup truck. And it says, Spence, that's the guy sitting, he's meditating like this. Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> that's why he also has a new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment and connect with Mother Earth. By looking no further than into the, the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So you too can be happy by going out and buying a Ford compact pickup. But since you're here, you can't do that. <laughs> so we have to find that deep, unconditioned happiness that's our true nature, that transcends even Ford pickups. The Buddha said, whoever in the world overcomes desire so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So I won't say so much right now, but we'll probably go into this more. When desire arises, just pay attention. Notice it. Feel it. Feel it in the body. Before we move to fixing it, letting it go, if you can let it go, great. If you can't, notice, let go of the thought, feel the desire or the longing that's in the body. Notice the quality. Notice if it's pleasant or unpleasant. Notice if it's suffering or not. What's liberating about the practice is we sit here and watch everything come and go. We can watch the strongest desires arise, stay around for a while, try to hook us in, and they pass away. When we see that process and we see that we don't actually have to act them out, fulfill them, there's a moment of liberation. We see that happiness or well-being is not dependent on fulfilling or satisfying those desires. We actually find a much deeper sense of well-being or contentment underneath that movement. So noticing the transient nature of desire arises for a while, stays for a while, passes away. And to remember that when we're letting go, we're not letting go necessarily of the object. We're letting go of the grasping around it. It's an important distinction. We think we have to let, we have to kind of push the thing away. We're just letting go of the, the attachment to something, not the thing itself. Our letting go of the attachment actually frees the object to be as it is. I think as Talopa once said to Naropa, it's not the world that binds you, but your attachment to it. We don't have to renounce the world, we have to renounce or grasping at it. So this is sort of a an overview of the hindrances. Um, get to know them. 
They know you very well. Seeing if we can invite the spirit that Rumi speaks of in this poem called The Guest House. When we embrace them with mindfulness, with an awareness, we no longer are at their beck and call. And so in a way, the mindfulness practice is a liberating practice when we apply it to anything, in particular to the hindrances. So I'll close with this poem from Rumi. This human being is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, notice the presence or absence of hindrances, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt. This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Insight Meditation Society on February 5th, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.